Our scripture lesson for this morning comes to us from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 25, verses 14 through 30. Listen now for God's word to you. For it is as if a man going on a journey summoned his servants and entrusted his property to them. To one he gave five talents, to another he gave two, and to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. The one who had received the five talents went off at once and traded with them and made five more talents. In the same way, the one who had two talents made two more. But the one who had received the one talent went off and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. Then the one who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five more, saying, Master, you, have, you handed me over five talents. See, I have made five more. His master said to him, Well done, good and trustworthy servant. You have been trustworthy in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. And the one with the two talents also came forward, saying, Master, you handed over to me two talents. See, I have made two more. And his master said to him, Well done, good and trustworthy servant. You have been trustworthy in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Then the one who had received the one talent also came forward, saying, Master, I knew you were a harsh man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you did not scatter seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master replied, You wicked and lazy servant, I, you knew, did you, that I reap where I do not sow and gather where I do not scatter. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and on my return I would have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to the one with ten talents. For to all of those who have more, more will be given, and they will have an abundance. But from the one who has nothing, even what they have will be taken away. As for this worthless servant, throw him into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The word of God for you, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Is there a question mark at the end of that? So there's an old story about two guys who go on a camping trip. One of them was an intellectual. The other one was a more simple-minded but practical man. And uh, in the middle of the night on one of the, um, during this camping trip, the, the simple but practical man woke up and he saw the stars and the night sky and he, he nudged the intellectual man awake and he said, what does it tell you that we can see the stars? And the, the man said, well, astronomically it tells me that there are millions of galaxies. Meteorologically it tells me that we'll have really good weather tomorrow and theologically it tells me there's a God. Why? What does it tell you? And the simple but practical man responded by saying, well, it tells me that somebody stole our tent. Perspective matters, doesn't it? The way we see things, uh, in this story, there's one man ruminating existentially and theologically, and there's another one seeing the practical reality of the tent was stolen. Our perspectives are all informed by our personal histories, our cultural backgrounds, our life experiences, and informs the ways that we see and interpret the things that we're looking at. That you and I, we could go down to the Detroit Institute of Arts, and we could look at the same painting, and we'll notice very different things based off of our perspectives. Or you and I, we could go watch the same movie and it might strike us, one of us emotionally, the other one might not even like the movie. It all depends on our perspective. Our perspective is informed by those personal histories, those cultural backgrounds, 
the things that we have experienced in our lives. Perspective matters. And I think that that is an incredibly important thing to remember when we come to biblical texts, because all of us come to the Bible not as blank slates, but carrying those perspectives with us, and they inform the ways that we read and we understand them. And, And that is an especially important point when it comes to reading Jesus' parables, these little elusive stories that seem to have fluid and ever changing meanings. It's to understand that we come to those stories with our perspectives. Barbara Brown Taylor says that how we understand a parable really depends on where we're reading it from. What life experiences do we bring with us when we come to those stories? It'll, it'll impact the way that we interpret them, that we, we all have a particular set of lenses that help us to see and understand the stories that we're reading. And sometimes those lenses are the ones that the church has given to us throughout our time as people of faith, that someone told us a long time ago that that's what the story means, and so we've always believed it means that. But I think one of the fun things when it comes to parables is removing those lenses and seeing it from a different angle. And I think that that's the challenge that's in front of us here this morning with this this parable. This parable that once again, as the parables of the last several weeks, features a landowner, a wealthy man who's going away on a business trip. But before he goes, he hands out to his servants varying numbers of talents So remember, a talent is roughly equivalent to 20 years' worth of wages. So he's handing out to them some of his liquid assets. To one he gives five talents, to another he gives two, and to the third one he gives one talent. And Jesus says he gives to each of them according to their ability. And so the implication then is that these servants are going to do something with this money, that they're going to grow their master's assets so that when he gets back, he's going to have more than he had when he when he left. And that's exactly what happens with those first two servants. The first one, he, uh, he gains five more talents, and the second one also gains two more. They both have a 100% profit rate. Both of them have doubled what their master has. And the, the boss is elated with them, so excited with them. He, he heaps praises on them at their quarterly review. He, he tells them that they're going to get a promotion in the company. But that third servant, he buries it in the ground, he says to his boss, we all kind of have those fantasies, right, of telling off our boss, of quitting in some fantastic and dramatic way. But apparently this third servant is living out that fantasy. He tells his boss off, he says, you're a harsh man, you reap where you do not sow, you harvest where you have not gathered. So I took your coin and I buried it in the ground. You can have back what's yours, but I didn't do a thing with it. And the boss is irate. He says, you wicked and lazy servant, You thought I was harsh, did you? Well, you're about to see how harsh I am. Take his coin, give it to the one who has ten, because whoever has more will be given more, and whoever has nothing, even that will be taken away from them. And as for this wicked and lazy servant, throw him into the outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Ah, such a great parable, isn't it? (laughs) You can almost smell the sulfur coming off of it. And there's a lot, I think, that should trouble us about this parable, And most of all, I think what troubles me about the story is the ways that we have often interpreted it. it. That normally we hear this story during stewardship season, that time of the year where I, I and all the other pastors in the country are asking you to consider what do you have to give to the church? Some of us have financial resources. Some of us have uh, talents, singing, leading committees, working around the building. Some of us have time to offer. What is yours to offer? Because Jesus is away right now. He's the landowner of the story. Jesus is away, and you don't want to be caught not working hard when he comes back. 
It's the typical way that we have understood the story, right? Now, let me say that talking about what we have to offer is a, a worthwhile conversation, one that we should have from time to time. But I'm not so sure that's the kind of conversation that Jesus wants us to have in the telling of this parable. I think one of the reasons why we read the parable in this way is that we live in a society that values working hard, that values putting your nose to the grindstone. If you want to get anywhere in life, you've got to work hard to achieve your dreams. We, we live in a society that values things like investment of growing your wealth and your assets, and I'm not criticizing any of that. I'm just saying it becomes the lens through which we read and we understand this particular parable. But remember I said a couple of weeks ago, parables are not always simple allegories but they are these stories that are provocative and meant to challenge us, meant to get us to, think, to thinking more critically about a, a particular issue. And I, and I think what this parable becomes when we read it in this way, what it becomes for me at least, is it becomes theologically untenable. Think about that. Is, it, is Jesus, so we want to think about Jesus as the landowner of this story, an absentee landowner who's harsh and cruel, a landowner who's all too quick to throw somebody into the outer darkness because they're unproductive? Does Jesus look at all of us as his little stock portfolios? Waiting for some investment on his return while he's away doing who knows what? Is that the way we want to think about Jesus? Is that the, does that match with the image of Jesus that we all carry around with us? You know, it doesn't really match the image of Jesus that I have, a Jesus who casts his lot with the poor and the outcast, a Jesus who seems to care for those who might have been considered unproductive members of society. So I think this parable is begging us, is imploring us for a different sort of interpretation, one that doesn't smell so sulfury at the end, right? It's imploring us for a different kind of interpretation. And uh, I'm deeply indebted to an author named Debbie Thomas, who wrote an essay on this parable, and to a scholar named William Herzog, they talk a lot about this parable, and so a lot of what I'm going to say with this new perspective comes from them, so credit where credit is due to them. So Debbie Thomas, in her essay, says that she was getting ready to write about this parable, and she really didn't know where to start because of the, the nature of the story, and so she read it to her son, and she expected that her son would hate the story, but he said, oh, that's a great parable. That's a, a demonstration of the Christian life, what Christianity is all about, and she said, explain more. And she said, well, the third servant is the hero of the story. The third servant is the hero of the story. But how do we get there? One of the, the kind of unintended results of this sermon series, looking at the parables of Jesus, these parables of the kingdom for me, has been that we've looked a lot more at the economic life of Jesus' world than I had intended us, for us to do. Um, but it's been interesting. It's been revealing, I think, a, a lot about these stories. And and remember that landowners are not the heroes of that society. They are the wealthy corporate elite. They're the greedy fat cats. They are the pre-conversion Ebenezer Scrooges. Um, they are people of exceeding wealth, and the ways that they got wealthy was through unjust means. So they were people who wrote uh, predatory loans to these small little family farms throughout rural Palestine. And they had interest rates in these loans of anywhere between 60 and 200%. And they wrote these loans to people who were desperate to keep their ancestral home and to keep these, these places that they had lived for generations and generations. Uh, but you know, farming is sometimes an unstable and insecure thing. Droughts happen, crops don't grow the way they're supposed to, injuries happen, and you don't have a return on your investment. And, and 
I remember talking about this with a, former, a retired farmer in my last congregation. He said, that's why you have things like crop insurance, to make sure you get back a return on what you've planted. But there was no crop insurance in those days. These exorbitant interest rates would kick in when crops would fail, when drought would happen. And uh, the 60 to 200% rates would kick in. And these farms would be foreclosed on. The landowners would then absorb it and turn it into the kind of the ancient equivalent of agribusiness. And the people who had owned these farms would then become day laborers. Remember that parable from a few weeks ago? They become day laborers working on the land that they used to own. But the Jewish law had a sort of protection for these sort of desperate people, right? They, there is what's known as the Sabbath year. So every seven years, debts were supposed to be canceled, land was supposed to be returned. It was supposed to be a way of helping people who ended up in situations like this. Well, wealthy and powerful people like these landowners find workarounds around stuff like that. And there was this little loophole that was created where in the sixth year, right before the Sabbath year was supposed to kick in, they could take that money, that debt money, they could put it into the temple in Jerusalem, and it would be, uh, and then so when people would come to collect and say, can you cancel my debt? They say, well, I don't have it anymore. And that money would be used to invest. The, the priests in the temple would invest it. So it's a sort of like an ancient equivalent of a tax shelter, right? This incredibly unjust and corrupt system. And what these landowners re relied upon was what we translated as servants in this story. So really what they are is they're managers, they're middlemen. They were the ones who did all of the landowners' dirty work. They were the ones who hired the labor for the day, looked, over the, looked after the property. They were the ones who wrote the loans. And when they wrote those loans, they always had these little hidden fees in there that they would take for themselves. You know how banks have those commercials of no hidden fees? They had hidden fees in these little, these little loans, and so uh, they would get wealthy themselves. And so when the landowner goes away on a business trip, and he expects his, his managers, his middlemen, to be doing something with that money. What he expects them to be doing is to be writing predatory loans, foreclosing on small little ancestral farmlands. He expects them to be putting that debt money into the temple. He expects some return on his investment in this unjust way. And that is exactly what those first two servants do, those first two middlemen do. But this third servant of the parable Something happens, I think, in his consciousness, and he sees the injustice of the system. He takes that coin and removes it out of circulation and buries it in the ground. And what he does is he calls out his boss for being unjust and exploitative. The third servant is the hero of the story because he is one who sees the system for what it is, unjust and exploitative. And he seeks something different in the world. This is not a, a parable about our talents and what we have to offer. It's a parable about justice and injustice in the world that Jesus lived in. And it calls our attention, I think, to justice and injustice and oppression in our own world and in our own society. And I think what makes the, the third servant of the hero so, uh, the third servant of the parable such a hero is the fact that he is one who is not a victim of exploitation or oppression, but one who takes it on as his own cause and his own concern. And there's a quote from Ben Franklin, at least it's attributed to Ben Franklin. Whether or not he actually said it is a matter of debate. Go online, you'll find people say, he never actually said that. I don't know if he said it. Um, the quote is nonetheless true. It says that justice will not be served until those who are not affected are as outraged as those who are. Systemic injustice, oppression, violation of the poor and the weak, nothing will be done about it until those of us who are not affected by it are as outraged as those who are. 
that things like racial injustice, economic inequality, poverty, hunger, those things will not end until those of us who are not affected by those things are as outraged as those who are. This parable is a reminder to me of our calling to justice, of our calling to address those systems that create poverty and hunger, create the, the needs that we address in the first place. You all know I love that quote from Desmond Tutu that says, we, there comes a point where we have to stop pulling people out, of, or just pulling people out of the river. We've got to go upstream and figure out why they're falling in. That we, those of us who live securely away from the riverbanks, it requires our attention to go and to find those who are falling into the river. That justice is about not just caring for the poor and their immediate needs, but also seeking to address the systems that create them and make them poor, to create those who are hungry. There's a quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the great resistor to the Nazis, who said, uh, your yes to God requires your no to all injustice, to all evil, to all lies, to all oppression and violation of the weak and the poor. That our yes to God is our yes to those who are poor and are, and are hungry, it, it, but it is also our no to the systems that create and make them poor and hungry. That our yes to God is our yes to those who are called the least of these, our sisters and brothers but it is also our no to a system and to a world that creates those who are the least of these, our sisters and brothers. We've been asking this question again and again throughout this sermon series, what does the kingdom of God look like according to Jesus as he, he tells these parables? It looks like, I think, people who are committed to creating a better world, the world as it could and should be. And it includes and needs those of us who are not affected by systemic injustice that things will not change until we ourselves are committed and participating and working for justice and for the world as it could and should be. What does the kingdom of God look like? It looks like the third servant of this parable who, at great risk to himself, takes that coin out of circulation. What does the, the kingdom of God look like? It looks like a, a church, a congregation who committed itself to, to working to end cash bail last year. What does the kingdom of God look like? It looks like a church that is addressing things like the climate crisis that often affects those who are called the least of these, our sisters and brothers. The kingdom of God looks like all of us working together to help to create the world as it could and should be. Thanks be to God. Amen. <laughs>